Today, my guest is Professor Nikolai Fosks. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Nikolai as a person. Professor Foss is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Foss is a Knight of the Order of the Danibrag. Impressive. He is a fellow of the Strategic Management Society, SMS, the chair of the Behavioral Strategy Interest Group. And he has served on the European Research Council and on SMS's board of directors. He has written over 220 articles in peer-reviewed journals, more than 100 chapters and 26 books, in addition to many monographs, opinion or magazine pieces. Uh, a Danish um, a newspaper, he, uh, he is listed as one of the best Danish economists and uh, in multiple years, actually. And uh, he received the 2014 Society for the Development of Austrian Economics Prize, 2017 uh, Richard Beckert Memorial Prize, and 2011 Emerald Citations of Excellence Award. Uh, interestingly, he is also invited to nominate candidates for the Nobel Prize in Economics every year since 1998. Thank you, Nikolai, for joining us. Well, thanks. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Nikolai, imagine you're stranded in a small village. Uh, people don't know about your research. How do you explain uh, what you work on and the impact, why, why your research is important? So uh, I'm seeking shelter in the local pub, right? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I'm standing there chatting to the guys in the pub and I guess I would start from the situation itself. So we have the locals standing there, drinking peacefully, chatting away in a friendly manner. There's friendly banter. Uh, you know, they're probably trying to organize a dark tournament next week. Um, and I guess they may wonder if I'm, you know, mentally sane. Uh, but I, I think I would tell them that I'm fundamentally interested in how is, how is all this possible, which is the most basic social science question of all what makes successful coordination, what makes successful cooperation possible. Most of what I've been doing is about this one way or the other. So uh, I've been interested in the, the theory of the firm for many, many years. Mm -hmm. governance structures, governance mechanisms. And of course, that is about how to best bring about coordination and cooperation. My, I guess my, my interest in microfoundations is also motivated in understanding, well, literally the microfoundations of successful coordination and cooperation. Uh, and uh, while this is sort of a, a generic social science and perhaps in particular economics um, concern, it is important, crucial even in a management context, because successful coordination and successful collaboration is pretty much the key to wealth creation, uh, including wealth creation and income creation at the firm level. So we're talking about value creation here, and we're talking about competitive heterogeneity, and we're talking about competitive advantage. So it all, it all leads into that. So I, I would start very generically talking to the villagers or the guys in the pub, and then I would you know, try to explain in a funnel-like way what, what, I, 
what I've been interested in and how it all grows from this overriding concern with the, the basic coordination and the basic cooperation problems okay. and how we, how we deal with that. Uh, Nikolai, about uh, things that we, I don't want to say forgot, but we omitted uh, from our recent research. Maybe we digressed, maybe we advanced into some other uh, direction. What are some of the omitted variables in IV research? In international business research? Hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I was actually a little bit puzzled when you invited me to, to do this. Uh, session, uh, this thing with you, because I don't really, I've never really considered myself an, an IB scholar. I'm someone who's who dabbled in IB, um, but I'm not a, a true IB scholar. But if if I'm, I'm if I am to address your question as an outsider, uh, I think there is surprise a microfoundations problem in IB research. Uh, so I did uh, a special issue of Global Strategy Journal a couple of years ago with uh, Fao Contracta and Sumit Kundu and Sumla Lahiri. Uh, and in, that, in the introduction to that special issue, um, we outlined basically the case for microfoundations and IB. And we were a little bit shocked to see how, how little tr truly microfoundational work there actually is in international business research. Uh, Torben Peterson, uh, and I did uh, a paper that got published in the Journal of International Business Studies last year, where we outlined, um, uh, again, the case for microfoundations, but we focused specifically on microfoundations in um, the IB literature on knowledge transfer and knowledge sharing, where you might expect that there would be solid microfoundational uh, work. But again, we were a little bit shocked to see that even here, we don't really have uh, strong microfoundational uh, research. So I, I think things to do with microfoundations are very much omitted variables in, 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 in IB research. So uh, we were talking decision-making here uh, at, at various levels as they unfold over time. And uh, I, I think there's a huge opportunity here for IB scholars to import ideas from, from the strategy literature in general, behavioral strategy ideas, uh, perhaps strategic human capital theory also, may also be applicable in an IB context. Uh, leadership theory is probably useful. I haven't really seen it much used in IB research, top management team theory and so on. So that's, that's a whole set of issues that all have to do with uh, missing microfoundations in IB research. But then I also think that um, another overlooked variable, or perhaps variables in plural, are bargaining power and market power. Uh, and this is actually funny because international business research began with Hymer's research, many would say, right, in the 60s and, and 70s. And this was all about market power and bargaining power. But then we, uh, people in the IB field went all efficiency. And they went all efficiency to such an extent that everything to do with market and bargaining power seemed to me, at least to me as an outsider, to have disappeared. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think this would be okay if bargaining and, and market power were empirically irrelevant and, and sort of orthogonal to efficiency considerations. But um, you and I, we can, we, I guess we can easily agree that, you know, big 
multinational enterprises probably are able to master and leverage uh, market power and certainly bargain power bargaining power vis-a-vis suppliers and customers and so on. So they seem to be there empirically, right? Uh, Moreover, I don't think market power and bargaining power are orthogonal to efficiency. I think, in fact, efficiency and uh, bargaining power are intertwined. So I have a recent SMJ paper with uh, Christian Asmussen and uh, Kirsten Foss and, and Peter Klein, and this paper builds uh, some basic, some, some simple models of how specifically power and efficiency are, are intertwined or linked. And I, I think these could be ideas that could perhaps be usefully transferred to the IB, to the international business context. So for example, you could, you, could, you could speculate that perhaps they could inform the entry decision. I mean, if, if you can leverage bargaining power or market power uh, vis-a-vis the locals, when you're thinking about entering, I mean, uh, you, you could threaten to compete very hard if you enter through a foreign direct investment, for example. Uh, and that threat alone may be sufficient to, to sort of shape the deals you make with the locals. So it's something that may be influencing the, the entry decision itself. This is precisely why I invited you. Because but the origins of the field had uh, strong roots in disciplines. And yeah. we, we talked about economics, we talked about anthropology, so, uh, political sure. science, international relations. And over time, uh, things got, uh, uh, the, the measurements got uh, finer and more focused. But I, I think it, it started, the field started uh, moving into more. Uh, uh, focused issues instead of uh-huh. the broad underlying uh, discipline-based uh, qu- questions. And mm-hmm. this is exactly uh, why I ask, ask you to contribute um, about uh, when you talked about uh, bargaining power, market power, uh, sure, we're talking about timer. And yep. can, can we say that we've forgotten about the pursuit of profits? Um, is, is there a yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's the, the, at least two, um, two approaches to, um, to, to superior value. And one, of course, is the efficiency approach, and the other is the, the, the market power, bargaining power approach. And uh, uh, it would be foolish to rule any one of them out a priori, obviously, as you know, research tended to do in the 1950s and 60s, where it was all about market power, and then perhaps in the 1970s, where perhaps we went perhaps a little bit too much towards the efficiency side of things uh, with the Chicago School and transaction cost economics. Um, and now we're actually going back to all in potential trust policy and thinking about competition to almost a complete uh, market power perspective, apparently. So it's, it seems to be a, a pendulum rather than, you know, the the, the middle road, uh, which I'm advocating here. Okay, uh, Nicola, I, I I'm very curious about this. How, how does one write 220 articles? How does, how one, does one, one write 220 articles uh, and uh, 100 chapters and 26 books? Right. Um, I, I, I guess it, it's very simple. Uh, I've always, I, I like writing. Many, many academics actually, in my experience, don't like writing. Hmm. 
they prefer to you know go attend seminars or conferences or workshops and you know that's that's all good but sometimes sometimes with some people i have the impression that there's a little bit of excuse for getting away from writing right and of course writing requires effort and motiv motivated effort um, and if you don't like it it's it's a problem but since i like it i have uh, made it a routine to try to write every day mm. save for holidays so i try to you know, put down or write a uh, minimum three to 400 words every day on something. And if you do that, basically most days in the week or entire year, it becomes many, many words. And of course, some of those words will have to be scrapped and so on because they're no good, right? But some of them are good, in fact, and survive. And um, I think that's this simple discipline is the key to having a relatively high productivity. I mean, I was looking at uh, my uh, papers at the back, of, I turned at the back of my papers, looking at my uh, uh, reference, list of references. Uh, there's not a single paper I've written without citing you. I'm thinking, how does this, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> how does this person uh, shoot without any blanks? Uh, like uh, whatever you write is, uh, is successful. Uh, I'm really curious about that one. Look, it's not entirely true. If I'd written 227 articles in A plus journals, you should then you could really truly be impressed, right? But I have not, of course. I've published a lot of papers in what many people would consider junk journals. But you know, it's not super important for me, I guess, where I publish. Of course, I like everyone else. I would like to publish in the best journals, uh, but I also know that you can be influential and you could be cited if you publish in lesser journals. And apparently, they, I, I think I saw some bibliometric work by I think Rem Modambi, where he documents that in fact, the sort of the, uh, the citation mass mm -hmm. is shifting somewhat from the very top. And it's sort of, it's, it's, um, it's, it's going down to lesser journals to some extent, right? Interesting. So, yeah, it is. Uh, about uh, creativity in scholarship, what can we say? Um, yeah, I, I think that creativity in scholarship is uh, something that grows from two things. I think you need to have deep knowledge of at least one field. And of course, that's a problem with interdisciplinary research that people may not always have deep knowledge of one field, right? But then it, I don't think it will work. I think you need to have deep knowledge of at least one field. And then I think you need the secret source, which is seeing connections. Uh, and this is like, like Schumpeter's theory of innovation, combining and recombining knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's the same thing. And the, by the way, this is something that, that Adam Smith, now we're talking, which we talked about economics earlier. This is something Adam Smith uh, describes in a famous essay called The History of Astronomy, where he basically says this, the key to scholarly creativity is being able to see co connections, by which I mean, you know, seeing uh, how ideas from a related neighboring field or discipline may usefully be transferred to the, the focal field or discipline. So, for example, you know, we have behavioral strategy, for example, which I think is a pretty creative and interesting field of strategic management. It's the application of all sorts of psychology in principle 
to strategic management in a disciplined way. Yeah. We have strategic human capital theory. Uh, it emerged when, when people, Ross Koff, for example, began to realize that, hey, we can take some of these pretty basic ideas, really, from economics, the economics of human capital, and we can transfer them to, to strategy to better understand appropriation issues. Uh, and of course, this is why I think that IP scholars uh, uh, shouldn't only study what goes on in international business, but they should, of course, also be attentive to what's going on in, in the neighboring fields. Obviously, in the, the closely the close neighbors, strategy, technology management, uh, leadership, and so on. But they should also be attentive to what happens in disciplines and what's happening uh, in the dimension of, of of methods, method innovations, and so on. About the idle curiosity question, what does your mind think of when it wanders freely in a state of idle curiosity? Um, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I, don't, I, cannot, I cannot recall as my mind's wandering freely. I think this is what I do when I sleep, perhaps. Okay, but but you're linking this to creativity. You think that you know this. This is of course this is interesting because idle curiosity may be the key to creativity also. Yeah, but that's, yeah, because... it's never worked that way for me. But I, I'm sure many people. That's how what they experience. Yeah, there's this debate: uh, discovery versus creation. And idle curiosity is the driver, the, the mechanism that drives. Uh, the, the the source the source of creation comes from that uh -huh. but uh, yes, yes. about the next uh, five to ten years of the ib field what's the next big question what's the next big uh, right. puzzle so now now you are you're asking the outsider again uh, and I, I what i say may not be precise or, or right even because i don't follow the field well enough but again let me repeat myself a little bit because i talked earlier about micro foundations and Somnath and uh, Sumit and Farouk and Torben and I found that if we looked at the IB, uh, did a little bit of bibliometrics, it was, it was just difficult to find solid microfoundational work in IB. So I think we need, uh, you, you need more attention to, to decisions and to, to decision processes as they unfold over time. Uh, as I said earlier also, I think leadership and, and top management theory may also be useful for illuminating and understanding those, those decisions. Uh, my my co-author, Bo Nielsen, would say that we need much more multi-level research and, and choice modeling perspectives. So this is more the, the method side of things I think, I think is right. One thing I was, I was thinking about the other day was that um, it's, it seems but you know better that there is quite a lot of attention to CSR in international business at the moment, corporate social responsibility uh, uh, issues. But it also seems that this is often not very contextualized. So CSR reflects different cultures, different institutions. What is proper CSR in, in, in continental Europe is different from what is proper CSR in the Anglosphere which is different, again, from what is proper CSR in, in Asia, perhaps. Um, so, I, and I don't see much of that contextualization of CSR practices. They tend to be discussed almost as if in a, in a vacuum. Then, then another thing, which, which I'm thinking about at the moment, um, the, 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 the whole CSR thing, which is now almost becoming defined in terms of the United Nations Development Goals, 
right? Uh, it's, it's going to make multinational enterprises and governments even more intertwined. So politics is going to become uh, even more important, I think, in understanding what MEs do and, when, and, 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 and what they are. Uh, the final thing, Daria, that you're saying it, but this is, a, this is something I, perhaps it's too trivial and perhaps I'm not sufficiently informed. But IB is about different nations, different regions, it's about borders and so on. And therefore, it's also about different languages. Right? But it seems to me that language and language differences don't, they're not, if they figure less in international business research than what is perhaps warranted. So it, it, it seems to be taken for granted that in a, in a Western multinational enterprise, English is the corporate language, right? And this is unproblematic. I mean, if, if you talk to people in multinational enterprises in which English is the corporate language, you know that this is very often quite problematic. And you'll also hear people say that, for example, a good command of the English language is an important source of influence. It's, it's, it's almost, it's super banal, but it seems to me to be neglected. And the networks that form inside units in an m and &E and between units or among units, those networks are also going to be shaped by, by language and language differences, and of course, nationality differences, right? I mean, we, we, we began talking about efficiency versus yeah. uh, power dynamics. Let's just call it power dynamics. So yeah. my question is, as an economist, what's the prediction? Is it going to be more globalization of, and more pursuit of efficiency uh, seeking firms through uh, interesting value chain uh, activities, supply chain activities? Or uh, is it going to be more uh, nationalism and populism? It's hard, hard, hard to tell because, you know, as, as we know, um, uh, politicians and their electorates do not necessarily pursue efficiency, right? So I, on, on grounds of efficiency, Brexit was most likely not a good idea. But still people, or a, majority, a small majority preferred it. And the politicians implemented it. And we had, a, we had a president in the United States who promoted what he called economic nationalism, supported by a large part of the electorate. Again, it may, uh, may not be uh, consistent with the pursuit of efficiency. But again, uh, people care about other things than efficiency. Uh, they, may, they may have values, they may hold values that may sometimes override efficiency uh, considerations. And, uh, you know, historically, this, this, uh, this is this great work by Darren Asimoglu, which, which shows how exceptional what has been going on in the, in the world over the last 100 years. So really is from the, in, in, from the historical perspective, in, in, in the big historical perspective, right? Mm. The, the idea of the corridor, the narrow corridor where we can live in relative peace under the rule of law, have a reasonably democratic governance and pursue efficiency. And the basic idea is, again, this is pretty exceptional and it may also not be that stable, actually. 
So it's, it's hard to say what will happen to globalization and so on. Well, perhaps my guess is that the, the uh, after all, the, uh, the benefits are so massive, the benefits in terms of doing away with poverty and so on, <laughs> increasing everyone's or most people's wealth. They are so massive that they will in the long run probably override a lot of, of other motives. I mean, again, in, since Second World War, this is basically what has happened, isn't it? Steadily increasing globalization. True. About uh, the PhD program, about uh, mentoring and advice, who was your advisor when you were going through the program? So who you was your repeat? advisor in the PhD program? When, when, when I was started? In, yeah. Uh, so uh, I started back in 1989, which is like the Stone Age, right? And uh, I, I didn't know anything at all. I came very, very young, very, very fresh directly from the exam table with a master degree in economics. And of course, I tried to translate everything into an economics perspective. Um, look, looking back, I, I wish I had understood much earlier uh, how eclectic and interdisciplinary management research really is. Let me ask it differently. Who was yeah. most influential on your development? And who was most influential on my development? Uh, yeah, I, I think my originally when I, uh, when I started back in 1989, I was influenced a lot, obviously, by my thesis advisor. Uh, a fellow called Christian Knussen, uh, who was interested in the uh, in the economics of of the firm, uh, and I guess I got that uh, interest from him. So that, that was my 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 earliest interest, and I wrote my thesis basically about uh, the 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 economics of technological change, just seen through the lens of the theory of the firm. This was an, an influential guy, and then were the other people you may never heard about them, but someone like Brian Lowesby was a very important early influence because he, he pointed me to people like Marshall and Penrose and Syed and March. And this was very useful because they, some of them at least, work from an economics perspective, but that yet what they said was very applicable to management. So that was a bridge. Mm -hmm. Then uh, later, Dick Langlois, Richard Langlois, University of Connecticut, was a huge influence on me. Uh, I met Sidney Winder very early uh, in my, my PhD uh, program. Oliver Williamson a little bit later, very, very, perhaps. Today, I, I think first and foremost, today I'm a transaction cost economist, basically. Uh, and um, of course, Oliver was, was responsible for that. So he's been, he was a huge influence, really. Uh, my co-authors have all influenced me a lot. Mm. Uh, Peter Klein, uh, Libby Weber, my wife. Uh, lots. Of, I've, I've collaborated with lots of people, and they have. It's, it's been great. Usually, they have surely shaped the way I I I, I think. Uh, Nicola, about giving advice to uh, junior faculty, young scholars, PhD students. Uh, what is one advice that you would give them uh, that they should um, they should do for a good career, yeah. strong career? Remember what I said earlier about writing it, trying to write every day. Mm -hmm. I honestly think that's good advice. 
because if you can if you can discipline yourself to write something every day you, uh, and you have data and so on right then then you are then you are safe usually uh, of course it can be difficult if you are you have the program you need to follow the the courses you may have a family mm-hmm. but most of us can um, regardless of our other duties we can usually find an hour or so right during the day and get something written it's possible for almost anyone i think so i i would try to um, adopt that routine uh, then um, another more uh, much less specific piece of advice would be um, the reading you do and people are told all the time to acquire a lot of quantitative skills of course but again that's a no-brainer because this is what we were we all know the importance of of quantitative skills and they are taught everywhere right so i would rather say read a lot of theory read very broadly and read the classics so you you must read one of oliver williamson's books the Mechanisms of Governance from 1996, for example, or The Economic Institutions of Capitalism from 1985. I think you must read Sire and March, The Behavioral Theory of the Firm. I think you should absolutely try to read Nilsson and Winder, at least the first six chapters. If you're an IB, obviously you must read back Buckley and Cousin, and so on. So read, read the classics. Uh, and... I think, let me go back again as a final piece of advice. I think writing is super, super important, not just writing regularly, but also building writing skills. Uh, Because writing well is really super important. I mean, it makes your life easier at the journals. But again, for most of us, it doesn't come naturally, particularly, of course, if we're not native speakers of English. So I would say also read what the good journalists write, read some of the good magazines, uh, try to learn from, you know, writers like, I don't know, Ernst Hemingway, perhaps, the master of the short story, short, concise writing, you know, no superfluous words, just precision and with a message. That should be our ideal as, also as academic writers, I think. But this, perhaps this is the most difficult part of of the whole research process. I mean, you can learn the quantitative skills, you can learn the theories, but learning to write well is, it, it, it's a lifetime thing, right? Nicola, thank you so much for this uh, interesting interview. Uh, I learned a lot, I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Okay. Thank, thank you. you, it was a pleasure.